Welcome to the Yogi MD Podcast. It's Nadine, yoga teacher, health coach, and retired doctor, here to bring you and your body together, not in sickness, but in health. Thanks for taking this time for yourself. Everybody can learn, and everybody can learn from one another, and everybody can make one change on one day to make one difference and then go from there. So what is the one thing that is doable that you could do tomorrow or by the end of next week that you believe will have a positive impact on five students or an entire class? I think giving back is a choice. It's a practice. Everybody can do it. Aren't you more than how much you weigh and what you eat? In the last few months on the podcast, we've considered some questions, such as, how do you care for others? How do you contribute to your community? How do you realize your potential? How do you show love? How do you stay curious? How do you declutter your environment? These are just a few ways that we discovered how to thrive as a whole person with a whole life. And now, as we wrap up the year, up next is spiritual health. We are going to reflect upon mortality with journalist Thomas Gaudio. Find purpose with author and teacher Oslem Ozkan. Cultivate hope with author Jewel Kuchera and business coach and writer Linda McLaughlin. And last but not least, practice altruism with educator and author David Reynolds. And now, let's talk about altruism with David Reynolds. In my experience, I have not either felt this way going through the educational process, nor have I really seen or heard teachers talk about learning and the student-teacher relationship as you stated so well in the book. Students as customers, those who are being served. So David, can you please talk about how you thought about this concept and reframed it this way? Well, I'd have to start off by saying it's not a concept that I originated. I do have to give an immediate nod to Phil Schlechty, uh, the late Phil Schlechty of the Schlechty Center, and who first mentioned this concept to me, not just to me individually, but in a group I was in a couple of decades ago. And it just really resonated. The way it was presented made great sense. And the frameworks that he and his colleagues provided really turned into the frame that, or the lens that you look through, at least I do now, for virtually everything teaching and learning. And it actually turns out that it's not really just a teaching and learning thing, it's really a life thing. So students as customers might sound like an odd concept, but they are the customers of the experiences and the work that's designed for them. So when they go to school, we're going to use the traditional school right now, uh, there is something there for them 
just like anywhere else that they go throughout the day something something is there there's an environment there are experiences that have been designed so they're like the, they're the participants of those experiences and if you as an educator make all of your decisions through the filter of the question how does this fill in the blank increase the likelihood that student engagement and therefore learning and progress is going to be increased, then you're on your way to having a relationship with your students that's going to be much more meaningful. And those things will, will happen as a result of that. If you're making decisions through the lens of what's the easiest thing for us to do, or how does this benefit adults in the building versus mm -hmm. the, the learners, or it could be adult learners, so just learners in general then that's the wrong lens. The right lens is the other way. And so if you think of them as customers of what you are designing for them, it's not like a business relationship for a frame of mind as far as the customers, then that's where that comes from. They will quote unquote buy it, so to speak, uh, if it appeals to them. The students are motivated when they come to school, but they may not be motivated by the things that we have prepared for them. They already have things that they're interested in. That's what motivates them, stuff they like, just like you and me. And you've got your drums in the background. You, you've got your family members involved in working on the music on your podcast and all that sort of stuff. That motivates you. So if there were a way to embed an opportunity to either play or create or dig into a little deeper, more deeply, something about music, in a particular con subject area at school, whether that's in a, a history or an art appreciation or literature or whatever it is, you'd probably be a little more interested in that individually than if it were never mentioned at all and it was just a very strict, straight, stereotypical sort of sit and get type of thing. So the teacher, a great educator, really does do this by getting to know his or her students. What is it that motivates them what are they interested in you know what are their needs and their interests and when experiences are crafted to align with those then by default they're going to be engaged and when they aren't they'll be disengaged so a student is not a disengaged student or a rebellious student or a student who's retreating from the experience all the time they move in and out of those levels of response to what's provided for them just like you and I do I mean, you've been in meetings, I'm sure, whether it was in your medical career or since, where you really did not need to be there. And you really didn't know everything already, or it didn't pertain to you mm -hmm. at all. You were never going to use the information mm -hmm. or whatever. Just pick, take your pick of why it would be redundant or un, uh, useless. You may have found yourself jotting down your grocery list during one of those meetings, or now people are texting. You weren't a rebellious person sitting in that boring meeting. You just, it didn't appeal to you at the moment. So over time, while you can't appeal to every learner every minute of every day, that's an unrealistic charge or expectation to have a teacher think all of your students should be really engaged all the time. But over time, most of your kids should be engaged most of the time. And none of your students should leave your class or your semester or your experience that you provide with them without being engaged at all. Uh, you've, you've missed something there if you've done that. And great teachers 
do that. And they do it through relationships because they know their kids. So how do we tackle the very real issues of maintaining order, getting through required teaching materials and hitting specific benchmarks? For example, making sure that this class has a specific high level of testing scores, teaching for the standardization. Yeah, that's a very sticky subject and a hot topic right now. I would point you to a great uh, resource, uh, John Tanner of Brave Ed, which he formerly tests since out of Texas, who talks about true accountability and what measures of accountability schools should adopt and districts should adopt. However, that doesn't eliminate the reality for classroom teachers day in, day out of, I have to spend my time, some of my time administering this test, and there's this pressure for us to achieve a certain level on it. So tests have a purpose. They've been misused from their original purpose. So you have to participate in that. Uh, It sounds simplistic, but if you are spending the other part of your time interacting with your students in a way around the concepts that they need to know and understand. It's not a, it shouldn't be a free for all. You, you don't go into the class and say, I need to make today interesting or it must be engaging or it's only going to be fun. Sometimes fun is not engaging, you know, to a big group of students in the class, what somebody thinks is fun, for example, or if work is too easy, it's even not engaging, but you do have to address certain issues. Literacy and numeracy are pretty big deal. That's how you access, <laughs> through literacy is how you access virtually all content in, in any subject area. And numeracy is a vital life skill. So you do have to gauge how well students are doing on those things. But I think about uh, in Georgia, there was a standardized test for kindergarten students. And for a while it was called GCAP, I think, then it moved to GKids. But my contention is that a good teacher knows if I, as a five-year-old, know certain things or not, I mean, you're, I'm in your class every day. You know where I struggle with its initial consonant sounds on a word or if it's I just don't have the concepts of number sets or groupings down in my head or I don't play well with others, whatever it happens to be. Good teachers know their kids. They know what they're capable of. And so they should be able to speak to how much progress I have made so far this year, what I used to know, where I am now, what the next step happens to be for me. A test does provide a snapshot of that. They have to be administered. They can be useful. The problem is that they're too heavily weighted uh, in the determination of a student's experience, how valuable the experience is. Principals and teachers need to be able to explain the value of what they do and couch an individual student's score inside another complete set of information about what that student knows and is able to do. And you have to just live with some of the flack that comes from the short news bites or a media hit piece, even if it's a puff piece, either way, one way or the other. This school is great. They've got a 98.9% you know, what, on whatever every single year, 10 years running. Well, have they done nothing? but focus on making sure the test scores are high because you can make those short-term gains. But are there some experiences that 
students have at a lower performing school, supposedly lower performing school, that are actually much more valuable for them. So until you actually understand the context the school operates in and you talk to people who work there and listen to the stories about student progress and student growth and you place in the proper position the weighting of a test or a test score, it's it's an inaccurate picture of what's going on in a school. As you know, our son is a physician and the, so we've learned quite a bit from him in the past few years, but if you are a great cardiac surgeon, for example, and as a result, and you live in a, a, a particular area where there's a high population of people who are unhealthy, whether that's through eating habits or poverty or some combination of whatever it is, mm-hmm. and they have more cardiac issues and they need more surgical intervention, the doctors who function or the surgeons who work in that area get more patients who are at higher risk when they're on the table. And especially if they have other comorbidity issues, there is going to be a higher death rate for certain types of cardiothoracic surgery or whatever for a higher risk patient group. Sure. Consequently, these surgeons who may be the most skilled because they deal with the most difficult cases most often and actually make heroic gains and save many people and add years to hundreds of people's lives mm-hmm. have worse rates when it comes to longevity or mortality, depending on which number you look at. And so you're going to say this is a worse heart hospital or this is a worse cardiac surgeon, it's not Mm, necessarily true. You work in a community where there's extremely high unemployment and there's not much chance for, there's there's no, the, the only industry shut down or whatever it is. And students are going home and they have a different set of responsibilities than other students whose parents work or they don't struggle with income issues. You have to know what's going on with those that you serve. And there are amazing numbers of amazing teachers who do this every single day. There are some great educators out there. And so you try to give every student a leg up and an opportunity for success at the next step by making the experience they have in your class, in this unit, on this day, in this year, as positive as possible with as much success as possible. And then you're able to explain that to whoever asks you about that. That's what we need to be better at, I think, is telling the true story about what goes on here. And I don't mean sugarcoat stuff that's not true or say you do X when you really do Y and explain it away with a pretense. Well, we really can't do that because it's just telling the truth about here's where these students were. Here's how far along they've come. Here's the hurdles they've overcome. And here's where they're going to go next. There's just a hyper focus on negativity sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I'm not trying to excuse anything. And I'm sure there are some schools that aren't so hot. (laughs) You know, there's medical clinics that have a lot to be desired. And there's, there's 
there's every pick pick in the in an occupation or a career sector, and there's absolutely great dedicated people all all over the place. So how does a teacher who is taxed and and who has a limited time, limited resources, with great intentions, how does that person get to know, say, a large number of students on a yeah. day-to-day basis? A, a huge class size is definitely a problem. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you teach... 120 kids a day and many teachers teach more than that and mm-hmm. they're and it's pretty quick you know it's 55 minute sessions or even if you're mm-hmm. on a block schedule it's an hour and 45 or two hours or whatever uh you can't do it quickly i mean you can't know everybody on day one it mm-hmm. take it takes time to do that but i've been in so many classrooms where i know i see it happen and i've, I've walked through schools with um particular principal i'm thinking of and it, i'm he must have known every single student's name in the school because I, he did not fail to say something with the first name to everybody there. So I know it's possible. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's reasonable to think that you know everything about everybody, but you should know, for example, that Nadine really thrives in groups. David hates it, for example. You know, that sort of thing. You should mm-hmm. be able to pick up on some things pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, or this student really does have a proclivity for uh, engineering type thinking. You know, he or she really takes this stuff apart and, and analyzes things differently. It doesn't take a real long time to figure those things out and have them emerge. I think it takes longer if the class is overly rigid and structured in a stereotypical yes. way, mm-hmm. because if you are simply standing and delivering and students are sitting and getting or not getting, mm-hmm. but they're sitting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's not a lot of conversation or dialogue or interaction that takes place. There's not real problems to be solved. I think Seth Godin talks about uh, the, the purpose of school is really to teach kids how to solve problems, <laughs> solving interesting problems. And so you really can't do that in the traditional, you know, historical look at a classroom in, in a bunch of rows. Is there a time and place for that sort of structure? Absolutely. Should it be a free-for-all? Absolutely not. But the more experiences you can design that give students opportunities to interact with each other and solve their own problems while you facilitate, but the problems have to be around the content that the curriculum mandates that, you know, you they need to know and understand and be able to do. Uh, and you, And I don't think you can do that on your own. So I think this notion of connection and forming your own network with other teachers is where this becomes possible because there are people who do it. They're not necessarily superhuman. Are they heroes? Yeah, in a way. Are they amazing people? Sure. Do some people have a natural knack or gift for interacting with kids and are just great teachers? Absolutely. And everybody can learn. And everybody can learn from one another. And everybody can make one change on one day to make one difference and then go from there. So what is the one thing that is doable that you could do tomorrow or by the end of next week that you believe will have a positive impact on five students or an entire class or whatever? You don't have to have a super lesson and a super unit for every kid every day it's not possible that's not realistic but you can 
make it better. Seth Godin always says make things better by making better things. So maybe the thing is a unit or a lesson. So the, the, the students aren't the products. The product at school is the stuff that you're creating. for. I mean, the, those are the raw materials or the lessons and the units mm. and that sort of thing. The students are the people. It's not the person who's flawed. There's something going on that needs to be addressed. And at school, sometimes it's the work or the experience that students are uh, being exposed to that needs to be addressed. And all of us can work on that. So then would you say that altruism, giving back, service, those are skills? They're not something someone is necessarily born with? I think it's a choice. And maybe, maybe the frame of the question is, is that a skill or a talent or is that a nurture mm-hmm. nature thing? I think mm-hmm. it's, I think giving back is a choice. It's a practice. Everybody can do it. I, I don't think you could point me to somebody who's incapable of being altruistic. I, I don't, I don't know that that's possible. Mm. And so I would say teaching actually is giving back, you know, that myth of if those who can do those who can't teach, well, if you, couldn't do it at all. I don't, it's kind of hard to teach somebody how to do something you don't know how to do. So that doesn't really make any sense to me. So I think teaching is giving back. It's the ultimate. It's the ultimate pay it forward piece. You don't really get to see very often uh, what happens with those students on down the road. I mean, you you have some follow up patient uh, visits with your patients as a physician, but there's not a probably a lot of interaction you have with patients you saw 13 years ago. Mm-hmm. So if you teach kindergarten, I mean, the chances, unless it's an extremely small community and nobody ever goes anywhere, the chances that you're really going to know what happened to all your students, kind of slim. But you do it anyway because you are making mm-hmm. a difference with people. Because okay. you can ask anybody on the street about their favorite teacher and they will have an answer for you. How do we get a parent to get on board with this idea of student not the, not as a product, but the learning is more important, the work, and celebrating that student's individuality and helping them to achieve their greatest potential as being more of the focus? You can't force somebody to involve themselves at school or in their child's education, number one. You don't have control over that, but you have some influence, I think. There's a difference. So uh, I believe you can uh, reach out. You can create an invitational environment. Uh, Sometimes something as simple as, I know many teachers whose personal cell number is at the disposal of, believe it or not, I don't know if people really realize how often this happens, but it's at the disposal of every one of their students' parents. I, I was in a focus group with some teachers, and three or four of these seven people said, yeah, all my kids have my cell number. Every single This is pre-COVID. Every single one of them. And, mm. par- and we interviewed f- parents at the same school. It's like, yeah, I can, I can text them if I need to or whatever. So you can create access, and you can break down the barrier, because many people's experience when they were students – was not what we want it to be for students that we serve now. But they have no other experience, mm-hmm. and so they assume that this is what school is like. Mm-hmm. And there's enough, there are enough places, enough instances where significant change in structure hasn't occurred to where there's some perpetuation of the understanding of this is what school is still 
like that we really mm-hmm. haven't changed that much except for technology which is not necessarily true so i think you can you can leverage technology but not to the point of making parents feel like they're on the receiving end of unsolicited email messages like you get from your local retailer you know you just want to go buy a pair of shoes and next thing you know you're trying to find the unsubscribe button because you're getting <laughs> hit 40 times a day so not like that mm-hmm. but you can make yourself available and you can do this takes time but it is doable because we were we were required, uh, but I think it's a great idea to do this with a principal I worked with years ago when I was in the classroom. You will call home for every single one of your students. You know, you'll talk to every single parent. Well, I taught every kid in the school by the end of the, each year, so that was a little mm-hmm. daunting. So I chunked off some time at the end of every day to do that. But the call can be so quick and so simple. Hey, you know, this is Mr. Reynolds. I've got, you know, Nadine in my class and we're working on this this semester, and she seems delightful. And I just wanted you to know, if you ever need anything, all you got to do is call me. You can call the school. You can, you can use this email. How would you like me to get a hold of you if I ever need to talk to you? You know, anything you'd like me to know about your child, have a good day. I mean, the conversation doesn't really have to take very long. It won't take very long. And you won't catch everybody. I get that. So you don't say, well, I won't get but two of my kids, so why bother? No, that's two. So you know, you, you work with the living and the people that are available. You can, you can do that. Uh, you can also do what we said, talked about earlier, which was know your kids well enough to be able to articulate something great that's happened. I worked with a lady who was uh, a first-year kindergarten teacher. This is probably 1998 or something. And she took time to write a note. So we talked about right, making a phone call. So, you know, well, they're not going to get it. So write a note. Well, it's not going to get home. Well, most of them will. These kids are five. They're going to take it home and show their mom or their dad or whomever, their parent. So just, they just would write a note and say, hey, Nadine did the, the cutest little thing today. You know, just a typical thing that a parent just eats up and just wants to hear something nice about their kid. Or, you know, I saw David, you know, pick up a tray for, for Dylan when he, when he dropped his apple or something like that. And just say something nice and put it in writing and send it home. And this was called like a little communication book or something. It was, it was, you talk about low tech. It was eight and a half by 11 construction paper with notebook paper in between folded in half, stapled with the saddle stapler, and the kid drew something on the front, wrote their name on it. And so during a, br- a break, the the teacher would, uh, when the, the students might be in, in music or whatever, to time to maybe for a week, one, or five, one a day, five a week, one person a day, write a note, send those home. And, over, and I got to read a bunch of those as the assistant principal at the time. And parents would write back. You would not believe how much they would write back. Well, they are getting involved in their child's education. Mm-hmm. And maybe next year they'll ask the next teacher, will you do something like this? Or mm-hmm. they might be feel less intimidated to approach it. And I think educators also need to realize that when they do have parents come to school, there's things we can do to make parents feel less intimidated. I look at it differently now. So after 30 years in schools and now doing other stuff in them and, and with educators, when I walk into a school, I look at things differently sometimes. I think, mm. what does it feel like when I walk in here immediately? You know, what's the initial greeting like uh, at, at, a, at a doctor's office? You know, does the receptionist greet me gruffly or does he not even say a word at all? It's like, you know, sign in or is it like, how are you and have an idea who I might be, you know? And, and 
just the tone, that sort of thing. But then beyond that, sometimes a parent is shuttled into a room or ushered into a room with, you know, five people sitting around the table and they start throwing around all the acronyms and that sort of thing. And I think it can be quite intimidating. Mm -hmm. And I think it needs to be much more conversational and thought needs to go into how do we conduct this meeting in a way that is nicely done and that know, what's our common aim? What's our mutual purpose here? We're all here to help child X, whoever that is. That's the goal. When I was principal, it was an elementary school, like a PK2 or PK3 school. But I asked teachers to send a student to me who'd done something fantastic. And they had the most, those kids had the most fun I would pick up the phone. I probably shouldn't have done this. In hindsight, I'd probably do it differently. Mm-hmm. But I'd pick up the phone. I would say, you know, you know, Miss Kelly, I have your your daughter here in the office. Uh, and immediately, that's all they that's all the parent has to hear. They think something <laughs> terrible is happening. So I really probably shouldn't have handled it quite that way. But uh, I'm going to put her on the phone and let her tell you why she's here. And so the parents just waiting. Uh, and I really did know these parents well enough to know that, that they would know I would tell them if it was something bad. But then the kid gets on and the child gets on and says, oh, I did something great today. Or, you know, he just called me up here because my teacher said I was blah, 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 fill in the blank, anything great. It is, the kid is ecstatic. The parent is thrilled beyond belief. So I I think, you know, don't take my advice on the setup to make people think it could be something awful. But, you know, I've got something nice I want to tell you. And I've got your child here in the office and you can talk to them in just a moment. You know, I would probably shift that a little bit. But that kind of stuff doesn't take a ton of time and you can move through a lot of students very, very quickly that way. And I don't mean to, you know, do it as a checklist checkbox activity, but you can focus on students who often don't get that kind of recognition, mm. students who might not uh, get that kind of recognition from their peers in the class mm-hmm. uh, just to give them that, that up, that, that leg up that day or, just a boost or whatever. There's just all kinds of things you can do. And I think that creating an environment of welcoming, we know your child and we really are accessible over time. This, the culture shifts an inch at a time and people say something good about that school. They'll say something in line at Walmart or at the football game on Friday night about, Oh, Miss Kelly did so-and-so that was great. You know, I it'll be repeated. It takes time, this. but it does change. You know, things that's how things happen, one to one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Beautiful, beautifully said. My audience knows that I'm a retired physician, so of course, when I was reading your book, this uh-huh. caught my eye. An educator's spin on the Hippocratic Oath. I'm not going to do it justice. Can you please talk to us about that concept and tell us a little bit about it and read it if you like, however you want to jump into it? Well, the, I think the concept probably hit me for two reasons. One, because our son has just graduated from medical school. So about four or five, six years ago, we really started Debbie and I, my wife and I, immersing ourselves in all that is preparation for medical school and what's that look like and what's it look like after and, you know, does it ever end? The answer is almost no. And so, and then of course you, 
start wondering about the, the Hippocratic Oath and that sort of thing. So I did some research on it and looked it up and found out it has shifted over time, that sort of thing. But the thing that sticks in most people's mind about it is, you know, first do no harm. Mm-hmm. And those words aren't actually in the original, but it's the, the concept is there. And I started thinking about, I just like words. So I started thinking, well, that sounds an awful lot like hypocrite. You know, I mean, if people's heard that before, not, I, I don't say that about physicians. I don't mean it that way. It's just the word sounded like that. Hippocratic, hypocrite. And I thought, oaf, oaf. I just started playing with the words. And I thought, you know, I bet people think I'm a hypocritical oaf sometimes because <laughs> nobody's completely true to their colors. And I say this, but I do that. You know, mm. what you do so loud, what you do speak so loudly, I can't hear what you're saying kind of thing. So mm. I know I've not been true blue to I profess X and I I live X, you know, a hundred percent because I'm human, not an excuse, but you know, I I mess up. So I I started thinking about many times where, or many times where I did not do the the best thing or the right thing and make the right choice as an educator, for example, uh, those things happen daily as a parent and possibly fairly often as a spouse. But uh, I just started thinking about how to, spin that and i thought you know it having integrity and keeping your word and building is how you build trust and so and you do that by being consistent and reliable and and that sort of thing and so maybe writing down the things that i should do as somebody who sees the value in teaching and learning exchanges that happen every day among every virtually everybody in all all career sectors would be a good idea and help me sort of reestablish what it is that I'm trying to do in whatever my current role is and whatever I want to do next. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and just took it a line at a time and said, what would this look like if this were for educators versus physicians, mm-hmm. people who are practicing medicine? And that's where it came from. And I looked through it again before our call today and underlined just a few things. And because some, I wanted to see – what is, what was I actually saying? Is there a theme in this thing? And so I found benefit of all learners, kindness and understanding. It's okay to say, I don't know, call on my colleagues, soliciting help from others, opportunity to change a life. I don't teach subjects. Uh, I will not regard my students as products. I'm a member of my community, et cetera, et cetera. And to me, there was a, a strand or a th- a thread running through there about a personal commitment to make things better on behalf of others or with others. It came down to the community thing. And I think back again to your guest, Dawn, who talked about how she used to describe herself as strong and other people would have done so as well. But then she realized that that could be temporary and healthy Mm -hmm. could be temporary. And Mm -hmm. she had to go with resilient Mm -hmm. as a different, I think, form of strength. Uh, I would call it a different flavor of strength, but she took it as sort of a replacement and a better way to look at that because the strength can go away, but resilience was one of her core values and and it stuck, it sticks and it allows you to move through everything. And as I look at this educator spin on the modern Hippocratic Oath, I think it is about having a commitment to making things better for students of all ages, you know, cradle to grave, doesn't really matter. And you you have to enlist help of others to make that happen. This is just my attempt to say, if I were in the classroom again, then this is what I would try to live up to and do a better job this time around. 
do you have something you'd like to ask me? Let's turn the microphone yes. over. <laughs> yes, I do. I uh, want to ask you if you will be a guest on Lead, Learn, Change podcast, which I hope is a yes or a no answer. <laughs> How could I say no? I am okay. so honored. No, no public pressure there. You know, <laughs> of course, you could have edited that out. Uh, so thank you very much. And the other one really is about, I'll, and I can ask you about this when we speak, but I am interested in your cookbook. So, I mean, because I'm on the cusp of having my first book published, I, I like to say that I've written about 12 books, but only one has actually made it to paper <laughs> so far. The rest of them are bouncing around in my head uh, right now or on little scraps of paper all over the place. So uh, your book interests me because I think cookbooks are cool. I like the fact that it's an actual cookbook a book uh it's not just a res you know a recipe online you may have a digital version and you can look at stuff online on your ipad in the kitchen but there's something about having a dog-eared maybe people some people think that's a crime so maybe i take that back you know, don't ever turn down the page write in a book oh no but having a dog-eared cookbook with you know those spices on that page because you go there all the time and then i just like to try different cuisines so it just sounds really interesting and i didn't know about your uh, background so you said Haitian cookbook so I thought that was pretty cool I just want to ask you to say something about that because that sounds really great thank you so much for asking yes it is going to be my uh, maiden voyage in becoming an author uh, it is something that has been brewing for a few years and I knew for a long time I wanted our history to be recorded in some fashion um, I have watched a lot of the uh, show by Dr. Henry Louis Gates, which is um, Finding Your Roots. And in watching that show, what influenced me and what touched me on a really deep level was this sense of frustration, this sense of loss. Because and many African-American experiences, uh, Caribbean experiences in my family, we don't know a lot about our ancestors and we can't go back very far. And it's because of the obvious things, uh, slavery, not documenting, um, losing documentation. In, in Haiti's case, the earthquake, which destroyed so much documentation. And so you rely upon word of mouth Someone asked me a very interesting question the other day about if I were to go to Haiti or if my parents were to go to Haiti, where would they go to eat? And it's not at a restaurant. It's at someone's home. There's this great pride in being able to come to a Haitian woman's house and she feeds you. She takes, this is how she gives to her community. This is how she speaks her love language my grandmother did that for us i want to capture that and i also adore haitian art i have a lot of it in my home and so i want this also to be an artistic endeavor so i i would like to have a haitian illustrator instead of just taking photographs as you see in books so it's just going to be a really gratifying way for me to demonstrate my pride and my love um for past generations because I wouldn't be here without them f for me for my family now for my daughters and for whoever um, for whomever comes afterwards I want us to have something to hold in our hands that we can be proud of because we matter well, I, I can't wait to read it and taste something cooked from it uh, and look at the 
the images. I, I mean, it, there's got to be a ton of color. I mean, I just yes. I just can't imagine what that might look like, but it'll be better than, than what I think. So that sounds great. Thank you for asking the question. I'd like to know your personal definition of what it means to be healthy. To me, I think it's maintaining the appropriate blend blend of or or focus on a couple of things what you put in your mind and your body that's really important and how you spend your time and that's comprised of sleep your interests overall fitness faith and relationships and i think if the blend is proper and i think it should be a fluid blend because you, you have to change things mm-hmm. based on what's going on in your life, then you'll have true contentment. And that to me is good health, not complacency, not apathy and not absent awareness and an active action. When you realize something's up, uh, I need to make a shift here. But if you're, if you're aware and you mix and blend those components of your time, that's the currency of life. And I think the true contentment results from that. I think that's, that's health to me. I loved talking to you. Thank you. Yeah, I could do this again. And now it's time for the Mindful Minute. A great big thank you to each and every one of you for taking the time in 2021 to listen and learn how to become a healthier person socially, emotionally, mentally, physically, intellectually, and spiritually. I turn the question that I ask all of my guests over to you. What's your personal definition of what it means to be a mentally, physically, and spiritually healthy person. For the next minute, find a comfortable place to sit. Lengthen your spine. Breathe in, expanding your belly and chest. Breathe out to relax your belly and chest. Breathe in the word altruism. Breathe out the word selfishness. Dear wise women, 
Thank you for growing our community. Keep using your wisdom and emotional intelligence to share this episode with someone in your social circle who will benefit from hearing it. Your grandma and your mom need yoga. Maybe you need yoga too. I teach yoga to wise women. I believe in empowering and educating wise women to thrive on their terms at every stage of life. Let's hear what a wise woman has to say. I'm a worrier. It's a little much, I think. And yoga always calmed me down. You know, it gave me a, a positive focus. This, everything's going to be okay. Uh, it's just really been like a centerpiece in my life. And I didn't have that until virtual yoga. To learn more, connect with me at yogimd.net. And finally, podcast theme music is by my niece, Maya Bishop, on vocals. My daughter, Lizzie Kelly, on guitar and bass. Yours truly on percussion and produced by Tim Buell. Thanks for being here. See you next time.